welcome to the Old Soul Movie Podcast, your number one spot for classic movie rewatches and breakdowns. My name is Jack Oremus, and I'm here with my sister, Emma Oremus. We decided that we wanted to make a show that reflected our love and appreciation for classic movies. And while you're here, hopefully we can share that together as an Old Soul family. We're going to be diving into these movies scene by scene and giving our modern reactions to the films that have influenced generations of people. There will be fun facts, hot takes, tears, laughter, and everything in between. And with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Ho, 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 everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast. And tonight, we are going to be talking a little bit about Meet Me in St. Louis. Emma, a film that is very, very close and dear to your heart. How are you tonight? And how excited are you to finally be talking about this movie? Oh, I am beyond thrilled to be talking about Meet Me in St. Louis. It is one of my all-time favorite holiday movies. I thought it would be so fun to follow up with this after last week. And I'm just, I'm so excited. You know, I went to school in St. Louis. I lived there for a little bit. So yeah, just this brought up a lot of happy memories for me and a lot of nostalgia from when I lived there. So good time. Yeah, I feel like having that connection to the city just makes everything a little bit more special. Like for me, having spent a little bit of time in Los Angeles, any movie that features LA, which is <laughs> luckily a lot of them, I feel like, uh, a little bit more of a personal connection to them. And St. Louis isn't really one of those cities where I feel like is glitz, glam, feature 24-7. So this one might even be the most iconic movie about St. Louis of all time, arguably. Yeah, I would I would say that's a strong argument there. <laughs> yeah. <to> say. <laughs> this is definitely it. Do you remember the first time that you ever watched it? Okay, I do. And there's a little story to go along with it. So I would have been in eighth grade and I believe it was around Christmas time. And we I didn't go to like a huge middle school. We were all pretty close with one another. And one of the students in my grade uh, found out that I think one of their parents had a job transfer or something and they had to move out of state. So our English teacher at the time in eighth grade said, oh my gosh, it's just like meet me in St. Louis. You've got to watch that movie and figure out some tactics to get your family to stay here instead of moving mid-school year. So after that, I was really intrigued, and I think I did check it out then and there, and I really fell in love. I thought it was so great, and then it became even more special once I moved there for a little bit. So yeah, this movie is just so special to me. What do you think is your favorite aspect about the city, just making it personal? Oh, gosh. St. Louis is a really fun town. You know, it's maybe one that gets overshadowed by others, but the sports there are phenomenal. It's a very passionate sports town. If you like going to a baseball game, going to a Cardinals game is so fun. Um, The food, actually, St. Louis has probably some of my favorite food in any city. Uh, Pappy's Barbecue, you've got Clementine's Ice Cream. Oh my gosh, like just just so many good memories there. You know, the festivities like Mardi Gras, they have the second biggest Mardi Gras after New Orleans and just the memories of watching the parade with my friends. (sighs) 
you know, it's very unique because it's kind of Midwestern-y, kind of got some Southern flair too. It's just a nice little gem. Oh my gosh, like the arch, going by the arch, going up in it if you get the chance. You know, it's just, it's really cozy. It's a really cute, cool little town with a lot of fun personality. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, hearing you say all that and having visited, I do feel like it's at the crossroads of a lot of different sort of American cultures. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned the South, sort of the Midwest, the West itself, you know, the gateway to the mm-hmm. West, the arch. So totally, uh, I think it's a very, yeah, very unique city. Very, it's compact. So it doesn't feel overwhelming maybe, but you also, I think get a really, really strong sort of explanation as to why the city is so special from this movie and seeing how strongly the Smith family is connected to it and how badly they want to stay there. And oh my goodness, I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, me too. Well, here's a little synopsis of the movie if you're not familiar. So this movie is divided into seasonal vignettes starting in the summer of 1903, and it tells the story of a year in the life of the Smith family who live in St. Louis, all the way leading up to the opening of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, otherwise known as the St. Louis World's Fair, in spring 1904. Yeah, so it kind of goes through a lot of, I don't know, kind of a big life change for this uh, Midwestern family. And city. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this film was adapted by Irving Brecher and Fred F. Finkelhoff from a series of short stories by Sally Benson, which were originally published in the New Yorker magazine in 1942 under the title 5135 Kensington and later novelized as a novel, Meet Me in St. Louis, which was also published in 1942. Sally Benson, if you recall from our Dealer's Choice episode, also helped write Shadow of a Doubt. Uh, And she wrote these stories that were published based off of her real-life experiences growing up. And the character Agnes was based off of her vantage point, but her nickname was Tootie as a little girl. Yeah, so hopefully that makes sense. So a lot of the actions of Tootie were then done by her real-life sister, Agnes. So basically, she switched her name and her sister's name around when portraying the characters. But in reality, uh, Benson's father did move the family to New York City, and they did not come back for the World's Fair. So I feel like this is kind of like a, Fantasy, I wish maybe? my life would have happened. <laughs> right, right. Maybe in St. Louis, the movie came out in 1944. It was directed by Vincent Minnelli. And, okay. This film is very important for a few reasons, but I have a little film history note here. So back in the day, let's, let's go back to all that old Hollywood era. Movie projects that aligned with a specific genre were extremely important to the studio system. Studios actually had specific units devoted to different genres. So for example, the studio RKO had a horror unit, Warner Brothers had a unit for biopics. Other studios had units just for westerns, rom-coms, and so on. And arguably the most well-known genre unit was the Freed unit at MGM, which was supervised by producer Arthur Freed. And this Freed unit produced highly successful musicals. It consisted of well-known musically-oriented actors, directors, composers, choreographers, and so on. 
Some of the musicals that came out of this unit or Freed's production include The Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain, An American in Paris, Gigi, Annie Get Your Gun, and of course, this movie, Meet Me in St. Louis. Now, what the Freed unit is most notable for is its success with integrated musicals. What is an integrated musical, you ask? Well, for starters, let's backtrack a little bit because there are really two types of movie musicals, backstage musicals and integrated musicals. So backstage musicals consist of a plot that revolves around a theater performance, a music performance, or a musical review. People are performing songs and dance because there is a show within a show. The songs can reveal things, but they don't necessarily keep the plot going or show character development. It's ultimately a really grand spectacle, like you're part of the audience watching whatever they're performing. Some examples of a backstage musical would be Gypsy from 1959, Cabaret from 1966, and another Judy Garland musical, A Star is Born from 1954. And actually, every version of A Star is Born is technically a backstage musical because the songs are performed in the context of giving a performance to an audience. So this was a common technique. Other musicals played around with having a story that was not about putting on a show and wanting the music itself to advance the story and feelings of the characters. However, a lot of these would come out super awkward because characters would just be going about everyday life like normal and then all of a sudden music would start going and people would be singing and dancing. Everyone like, breaks out into song. Right. Kind of how I imagine like a, like a musician's life kind of is on a daily basis where they're right. just making breakfast and then they start singing about avocado toast. Right? Yeah, like imagine hanging out with all your friends and then one of them just starts singing about their feelings. Uh, <laughs> really uncomfortable and really unnatural. So this would be an integrated musical, meaning the song and dance numbers are a part of the narration of the story. The plot isn't put on pause so we can watch something else that's elaborate. Think of it this way. In an integrated musical, we have to watch the music numbers in order to understand where the story is going. With a backstage musical, you could skip a musical sequence and it wouldn't hurt your understanding of the storyline. And the free unit for musicals really figured out how to make these integrated musicals less awkward and for more of the music numbers to happen organically. Here's a quick example to differentiate between the two types. So take the movie White Christmas, which is not a freed unit production. This is a little bit of a hybrid of a backstage and integrated musical, mostly backstage. Uh, but for example, one of its backstage musical type elements is the musical number Mandy, which they perform for the purpose of rehearsing for a show that they are putting on. It has nothing to do with Bob, Bill, Betty, or Judy as people. However, in the same movie, a more integrated musical scene is when those characters are on the train going to Vermont and then they start singing Snow. The sound of the train on the tracks provides a tune for them to start singing to as they get excited for their new wintry destination. So Mimi in St. Louis does a particularly great job of this integrated musical technique, and we will definitely point out examples of how this is done along the way during the rewatch. Great. Yeah. No, I think that that was a lot to take in. Yeah. I feel like Judy Garland really kind of steals the show. Any song that 
puts her at the forefront or has her kind of performing like with her and Tootie. That's a, that's a great kind of scene. But uh, I mean, Judy Garland is Dorothy, you know, so anything that she is involved in, I feel like her voice is just so immaculate and really just scene stealing that whether it's her singing at the beginning or even have yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which of course is kind of the iconic generation defining lasting song maybe from this that you can argue. And I feel like that's kind of what gives it the the holiday oomph and makes it so timeless, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that for me, a huge part of the magic of this film definitely comes from the directing from Vincent Minnelli, absolutely prolific, extremely renowned director, particularly known for his musicals. You might also know his work from An American in Paris, Gigi, Ziegfeld Follies, uh, and the original Father of the Bride. Uh, so that's really cool. And like you mentioned, this cast just phenomenal. I mean, let's let's name some of them. Uh, we have Judy Garland as Esther Smith. We have Margaret O'Brien as Tootie Smith. We have Mary Astor as Mrs. Anna Smith. We have Lucille Bremer as Rose Smith. A total fresh face. This was her first acting role. So that's kind of wild to have such a big role without any prior buildup. Uh, Leon Ames as Mr. Alonzo Smith, patriarch of the family. Tom Drake is John Shruett. Harry Davenport is Grandpa, sweet old Grandpa. I was gonna say, isn't isn't uh, Grandpa sort of the the patriarch? I know that. Ron I get well. Kind I think of he's calling the shots, but Grandpa is still hanging around. I guess so. He's the mo- he's the dad of the mom. So does that oh, change his right. status? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He's, you tell me. He's kind of a, a <laughs> he's kind of a patriarchal figure, maybe. Yes. But he's not. He's kind of like uh, Grandpa Joe. From, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from uh, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Exactly. But he, he does kind of give off a few of those vibes here and there. But um, And then yeah. we have Chill Wills as Mr. Neely. He's in this too. So very fun cast. Oh, what's really fun about this cast in particular is that a few of them played family members in other movies. Mary Astor played Judy Garland's mother in Listen, Darling from 1938. And Mary Astor would also go on to play the mother of Margaret O'Brien again in Little Women from 1949. And her on-screen husband in Little Women was played by Leon Ames, who was her on-screen husband in this movie, Mimi in St. Louis. So they played husband and wife and parents to Margaret O'Brien twice. Yeah, so you can tell like the chemistry really came through and they wanted to recast these people as family members again. A little bit deeper into the background on some of these stars, uh, starting with Judy Garland, who plays Esther. (sighs) There is so much to say about her. One of the most brilliant stars of all time. Her music and film legacy is huge. Uh, Of course, you'd know her from Dorothy as the Wizard of Oz. Being 21 at the time of filming, she was not down to play another teenager and risk being typecast as the girl next door. And despite being consistently put into ingenue roles. In her real life, by the time this movie went into production, she had been involved in Hollywood nightlife. She had been married and divorced. She had an abortion due to high pressures from the studio because her pregnancy wasn't approved. And she had multiple affairs with Hollywood playboys. Uh, So she already was like living quite the life at this point. She wasn't that girl next door per se. 
And growing up, Judy Garland felt extremely self-conscious of her appearance, uh, feeling not as pretty as her peers, and she wanted to be seen on screen just as glamorous as other female stars her age. So eventually, Vincent Minnelli convinced her of how this role did portray a beautiful leading lady. Uh, makeup artist Dorothy Pondell worked with Judy Garland for this movie and emphasized her natural traits, most notably with the technique of arching her eyebrows, blushing her cheeks, adding false eyelashes and bright red lipstick to showcase her eye color and lip shape. Before this film, the studio made Judy Garland wear nose discs to turn her nose more upward and teeth caps to disguise their crookedness. Dorothy Pondell removed the nose discs and teeth caps, telling her that she was naturally pretty without them. And Judy Garland was extremely impressed with how she looked on screen, and aspects of the makeup for this role became part of her signature look later in her career. And Judy Garland later stated that working on this film was the first time she ever felt truly beautiful. Aww. Which I guess kind of went into why she ended up becoming engaged to Minnelli, the director. Yes, you're right. Yes, Judy Garland and the director of this film married in 1945. And they had one daughter in 1946 who grew up to be, drumroll please, Liza Minnelli. Yep, there you <laughs> so, go. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> very exciting. Despite her positive experience with this film and how this ended up becoming one of her favorite roles, Judy did struggle a lot in her personal life during this production due to being overworked. Uh, according to Mary Astor, her co-star, Judy was working both days and nights, which resulted in her constantly showing up late to set, not getting any sleep, getting really anxious and teary with fatigue, which caused delays, and all this would annoy the cast and crew members so much. Mary Astor said it wasn't until later on that she understood the real pressure Judy had been going through. Right. I mean, when you kind of get thrust into the limelight at 17 with uh, The Wizard of Oz, and then you're, you're seen sort of in that role as Dorothy, and then you, you're growing up personally, but everyone's still seeing you in, I guess, one type of way. and then. Mm -hmm. You have this movie, for example, where you have tons of rehearsals. You have 58 scheduled shooting days. It, it feels like, yeah, I mean, she, you reach your limit at some point. And uh, for Judy Garland, I, I feel like it's more understandable when you put it within and understand, I think, the, the context and where she's coming from. But yeah, when the production goes from 58 days to 70 days, I could see how it would make other people upset, but they're not really understanding where she's coming from. And you might say, yeah, she's a diva, blah, 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 blah. But you're not really, again, understanding the, the pressure that is put on her from these execs and delivering and being sort of the, the marquee star of these movies. Mm -hmm. And I guess this was really her second biggest movie. Would you, would you go as far as saying that? I mean, she came out with The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of... It's like the follow-up almost. Yeah, I would say this is her first mature one. I mean, she was in this other movie called uh, Presenting Lily... Wait, Presenting Lily Mars. And uh, that was kind of her first opportunity. But yeah, this was, this was a really big one. She was in a bunch of movies with Mickey Rooney. Right. Uh, where she did play that, you know, like 
you know, best the infamous, friend. <laughs> the infamous yeah. Mickey Rooney. Oh God, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is the first one where she was really touted as kind of like grown up, sort of. Yeah, big star. Yeah, like, yeah, no. Leading lady, like Leading Vincent Minnelli said. Right. Also notable in this cast would be Mary Astor, who plays the mother, an absolute legend in the film industry. One of the very lucky stars to successfully transition from silent pictures to talkies. And she was kind of a pioneer as a celebrity in the sense of she openly addressed her struggles with alcoholism even since the 1930s. Wow. Very rare. You might know her from The Maltese Falcon from 1941 with Humphrey Bogart. Uh, she also wrote several novels, which is quite cool. And yeah. then, of course, we can't do a mini spotlight on the very notable Margaret O'Brien who oh, played boy. Little Tootie. <laughs> this is absolutely crazy. Sort of the backstory of the casting of Margaret, Margaret O'Brien, as well as some of the... I think it's too light to call them hijinks that happen on set because they're not really hijinks. They're pretty serious things that happen. But Emma, Margaret O'Brien in this movie, I mean, on camera, she's unbelievable. You know, absolutely. Judy is the cutest thing that has walked the face of the earth. <laughs> Major scene stealer. Uh, Margaret O'Brien was an extremely prolific child star in the 1940s. She's also known for her work as Mary Lennox in The Secret Garden from 1949, uh, Beth and Little Women from 1949 also. Uh, she's one of the standouts in this film for sure. She even earned a special Oscar for Best Child Actor because of her work in this film. It was kind of like an honorary award. <laughs> you, you know you're doing well if they make awards specifically for you. <laughs> exactly. And she's still acting today, which is incredible. Like truly amazing. Don't worry. We'll get her on the podcast next year. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> but yeah, there is a lot of craziness uh, that goes along with her being part of this. Yeah. I mean, the thing that really stood out to me while doing a little bit of research for this was that it was almost not her for the role. She was almost not cast for the role of 2D here just because she had that rapid ascension to stardom and was, uh, I guess, rightfully entitled to a salary increase, which was not, <laughs> I guess, part of MGM's plans. Yes. And she also had uh, quite the stage mother from the looks of it, from, from my research, Definitely. Uh, who said she would not let her daughter be in the film unless there was a substantial raise. <laughs> right. So because of all this, MGM was sort of... Fuming. <laughs> fuming. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. And they... I guess threatened. I don't even want to say threatened, but they had the alternative option of casting the daughter of a studio electrician who was also employed by MGM. So they were looking at this young girl named Sharon McManus, and they were starting to fit her with costumes and get her ready for the role of Tootie. Margaret's mom called their bluff, and she's like, yeah. "You're not actually going to put yeah. that little girl in this movie." Right? Not not when. I guess Margaret's mom had already seen how important 2D was to the, the story. They yeah. weren't going to cast Sharon McManus. No offense to Sharon McManus. But <laughs> she wasn't going to be sort of the tier below Judy Garland <laughs> as far as just kind of stars of this, this film. And so, yes, they came back to Margaret, 
gave her the role, gave her the salary increase. And then, oh my goodness, Emma, what happened on set? Oh my gosh. Once the production started happening, McManus's father, the little girl that they said was going to play the role, uh, was employed on the film and intentionally dropped a heavy lighting thing uh, from the catwalk to the soundstage floor. And it just barely missed Margaret O'Brien. Horrifying that another human person would do this. He was admitted to a mental institution for this action. Yeah. Could you you imagine? Absolutely horrible. Could you imagine Margaret O'Brien? I mean, I would be maybe scarred for life having (laughs) uh, having a, a near accident like that occur on set. Yeah. So, I mean, we're very lucky that nothing happened though. Either way, very, very lucky that Margaret O'Brien kind of came out of that, uh, that entire debacle unscathed. So yes, (laughs) kind of goes into maybe the theory that this is more of a Halloween movie than a Christmas (laughs) movie, which is my humble opinion. I love the Halloween scenes. Uh, personally, I think that, uh, I think that Manelli does an excellent job, which we'll talk about later. Absolutely. I mean, so the entire cast and crew were completely impressed with Vincent Manelli's attention to detail in every shot. He made sure to consult with the author, Sally Benson, on how the house should look, how the interior should look. And they really fit it to near perfection in every set. And even the movie's costumes, the designer for this film, uh, took inspiration by looking at movie costumes out of the Sears and Roebuck and Montgomery Ward and Marshall Fields catalogs from the time period. So everything was really, really right to a perfect point there in terms of accuracy. Uh, The only inaccurate part, according to Mary Astor, who did live during this time period, was that girls Rose and Astor's ages wouldn't be having long swinging hairdos. Girls typically put their hair up once they stopped wearing their pigtails. Uh, it was like growing up a symbol of like, oh, you're becoming a woman, kind of like how boys would wear long pants for the first time. Right. Again, reminder to everyone, this is taking place in 1903. So 1944, things have still, I guess, progressed. But yeah, like early 1900s, I feel like that's not, (laughs) that's not happening. (laughs) We're not having these long flowing auburn locks of (laughs) Judy Garland's beautiful hair, which again, that's one of my favorite scenes when they're kind of talking about their hair, Rose and Esther. Like (laughs) hypotheticals of them going out. I mean, what's really unique about this, uh, I mean, why this movie was probably so massively successful at the time was, and ultimately to my knowledge, you'll see a lot of content during the war period and post-war period when nostalgia pieces became really popular a longing for simpler times before the trauma of World War One, before the Great Depression, before the trauma of World War II. For example, there's an episode in the Twilight Zone called Walking Distance, where a man goes to his hometown and it's exactly like how he left it as a kid with ice cream for 10 cents and all that stuff. It looks kind of like the town did in this movie. So you see people wanting that, wanting to go to those carefree times. Yeah, remember this came out uh, right in the middle of the war. Right. I mean, I think that that's such an interesting phenomenon that really continues to live on through today. It Mm -hmm. almost seems like that's inescapable. And even when you read about uh, people that lived generations ago, like uh, Vincent Van Gogh, in his own letters, he would talk about 
how he longed for simpler times, you know, back in God knows. <laughs> and it's like how much more simple, like to a, a modern person like us, we can only imagine like how simple that must have been. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, whenever the time period is, I feel like everyone is always looking at the past through, through these rose tinted glasses. And, um, I guess that's why we're all kind of so drawn to nostalgia. I mean, look at stranger things for God's sakes. I mean, we're so drawn to it. And I feel like this movie, it's like you said, the the beauty really comes through in the details. And when I did this rewatch, that's what I was looking at myself. I was like, what really makes this a special movie? And I feel like when you're looking at these scenes, especially the the summer scenes, uh, I mean, every every season really is special, maybe barring spring because it <laughs> lasts for like four minutes. But every every season, I think, really is encapsulated with how that season mentally feels, maybe through our memories. You know, summer, very bright, autumn, a little bit darker, but spooky and fun in its own kind of way. <laughs> and then Christmas, of course, the magic of Christmas. And St. Louis, again, I feel like it's the perfect city maybe along with a few other Midwestern ones to really have a movie like this because you do experience the full range of the seasons. So everything really comes together quite nicely, in my opinion, for bringing that nostalgia back. And I'm sure that that's what appealed to that audience of 1944. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're watching this when it came out in the 1940s, it would have brought back so many good memories uh, to the older adults. Like you mentioned, it is kind of like uh, when you're watching Stranger Things with someone who lived through that period and they're like, ah, I remember that. And it, and it brings back a smile. So uh, <laughs> it's real. It's a really special experience. And even though really no one has around today has lived through this time period, I feel like it has truly kind of put it in a little time capsule for all of us to see and experience ourselves. Yeah. Emma, what else do you think is notable before we kind of get into the the rewatch, the movie? All in all, this is such a fun movie, such beautiful music, fun makeup, fun costumes, very beautiful, sweet story. It's got a lot of heart, a lot of good feelings. This is a must-see if you haven't. I think it's particularly appropriate to watch this time of year. It'll be really special. And I'm excited to get into it. And I'm sure my memories of good old St. Louis will pop up here and there. So I'm excited to take a stroll down memory lane myself. Oh, definitely. I'm actually... I'm just looking up the lyrics to Meet Me in St. Louis right now, and I am quite ready to be your Tootsie Wootsie and meet you in <laughs> St. Louis. I was I was so torn between calling it, you know, Meet Me in St. Louis versus Meet Me in St. Louis because everyone there I feel like says St. Louis, but I feel like I, Louis is kind of the nickname for Louis. Yeah, yeah. you know, but uh, <laughs> but yes, we will dance the hoochie coochie and boogie our little. Tushies <laughs> down to uh, down to the rewatch. Emma, are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Perfect. All right. So, like we have mentioned many, many times, the backdrop for the film is St. Louis, Missouri, in the year leading up to the 1904 World's Fair. It is summer 1903, and the Smith family leads a very comfortable upper middle class life. Alonzo Smith and his wife Anna have four daughters: Rose, Esther, Agnes, and Tootie, and a son. Lon Jr. Esther, the second eldest daughter, is in love with the boy next door, John Truitt, although he does not notice her at first. Tootie, 
the young, or I guess, is she the youngest? Would you yeah. say? Yeah. So Tootie, the youngest, was with Mr. Neely and is disputing that St. Louis was the best city. <laughs> Rose is expecting a phone call during which she hopes to be proposed to by Warren Sheffield and is embarrassed when not only does Warren fail to propose, but the entire family is present as she takes the call during dinner. Oh, wow. What an oh introduction to a very <laughs> fun family. Emma, where do we begin? Where do we begin? So many sweet scenes to establish this family. I feel like we get a really great glimpse of all their personalities right off the bat. They clearly have a love of St. Louis because of all the singing about their town, even within the first eight minutes. <laughs> right. And oh man, our girl Rose. Oh, Warren Sheffield. Rose has got to get that proposal. I mean, they've been dating six months and no ring. Like, how embarrassing. Yeah, six months, no ring. <laughs> she's uh, the ripe age of 23, and she's going to go barren any minute now. Uh, she's, she, yeah, she's an old maid at this point. And who is the strapping lad next door? John Truitt, the guy that... <laughs> has her eye on John Truitt, the uh, the three sport all American athlete, <laughs> who we'll, we'll you know talk a little bit about you know throughout all this. But uh, yeah. but yeah, my goodness, John Truitt, Warren Sheffield, all these suitors for all of the Smith family. And right off the bat, you know, we get kind of our first musical musical number, which is the song "The Boy Next Door." This was a huge hit when it came out. This is kind of our first integrated musical moment. Notice how the singing doesn't feel totally out of place. And this is because we had members of the family singing for fun earlier. Like, you know how you get a song stuck in your head and you start singing? Like, that was the family doing this. Uh, so then when we hear Esther start singing about her feelings for this boy next door, it feels like a more natural transition. Also, they live on Kensington Street. And for my St. Louisians or people who might want to visit St. Louis, uh, Kensington Street, where their home is located, is actually relatively close to Forest Park, uh, where the zoo is, the jewel boxes, the art museum, the history museum, all amazing things that you've got to see, the World's Fair Pavilion. So they would have been really close to where the action is uh, taking place. Not like directly there, but not crazy far at all. Uh, it's a really cool area to visit if you're ever in town. Uh, definitely visit Forest Park. I recommend it if you get the opportunity. And I believe that address at Kensington Avenue, the real one, is a vacant lot. So no one's Up living in the glory. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think the thing that really stands out to me is, again, it's the summer of 1903. And the colors, everything is yeah, just it's so, it's in full bloom. It is yeah, wonderful. Everyone, I feel like, is dressed to the nines. And even the dirt roads of Kensington <laughs> look just magnificent. And the inside of the house, I feel like, I don't even know if I would call it Victorian, but it does have kind of cool little aspects to it, like that stained glass sort of bathroom. I just, I've always liked that scene. I've always really liked the the set design there. But yeah, I, I, I love the, uh, the establishing sort of relationships of everybody. You know, Esther is kind of this young beauty and she just kind of feel a little bit of the jealousy of Rose, but it's not really jealousy. It's more just kind of like dejectedness. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Like, I mean, like Rose is kind of unlucky in love, but kind of the fearless leader of the group. Esther's like that popular girl. 
we have Tootie, who's clearly the favorite of like the younger right. children, I feel like. <laughs> Agnes is the forgotten middle child, of oh. course. But you know what? I when I watch this, I feel like Agnes is really cool among her friend group. Yeah. But maybe feels like out of place in her family. That's how I take things. I love the scene with Tootie exclaiming how lucky she was to be born in her favorite city, St. Louis. It's so cute because it's probably the only city she's ever been in. And this is another really interesting moment. Like even if you're listening to Tootie in this very first scene that you see her, hear how morbid she is when she talks, and when she's talking about her doll. There are actually studies out there, I believe, with how natural it was for children to talk so morbidly and darkly in movies in the old days. That was, you know, very natural. Really interesting. 2D is quite the troublemaker, which (laughs) I don't know how that's going to go on later in life for her. She's a mischievous one. Yeah. She picks up on, I guess, how society works pretty quickly how policemen always ignore little girls and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> I'm sure that she's going to be quite the, uh, the Bonnie to someone's Clyde further down the line. But, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and wow, what do we think of Alonzo Sr., the father? <laughs> well, man, I, <laughs> I, I kind of feel bad for Alonzo Sr. in a way because, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's sort of, put into the this picture as being kind of like this grumpy yeah patriarch he's sort of i don't know he's not dismissive but he just kind of has his way you know it's his way or the highway kind of in this household but right uh, from from a character yeah from a characterization standpoint we get a great introduction to his challenges as just a human being right he's very stubborn and he wants things his way very self-centered Uh, And that's going to be his hill to overcome throughout this movie in terms of motivation and change. Right. And I don't think it's necessarily unwarranted. Like he had a really bad day at the office when he was coming back from, uh, (laughs) I guess, what what was his law case or whatever it was, which didn't go in his favor. And yeah, the last thing I would want to do is just have dinner right away if I wanted a nice cool bath on a hot St. Louis summer day. You know what I'm talking it gets about? hot in St. Louis during the summer. I definitely get that uh, sentiment there. <laughs> right. So I don't care if my my maid needs to go home early. I'm probably going to take a bath. I'll tell the, you know, the rest of the family, just eat on without me. I'll, I'll have it later. Put it in the uh, icebox. Throw it in the icebox for me. Uh, the dinner scene is amazing. I love how rapid fire it is. It's just like boom, boom, boom. Uh, it kills me. Like, where'd my soup go? Like, they're just trying right. to rotate out of this so quickly. And apparently, yeah. Margaret O'Brien was quite the little trickster in real life. And she liked to mess with the props master during the scene and change all the silverware around. And because she's like, you know, the big the star, star. <laughs> you can't really say no. Right. I don't know. It's sure it was a mess. Uh, and poor, poor Rose. What a tremendously awkward phone call that was. <laughs> the second Warren's like, don't mention this call to anyone. And on top of that, it's not a proposal and everyone can hear. Yeah. Oh my uh, gosh. That's, How awkward. I mean, 1904 props right there. You know, Getting the, the call at dinner right in front of your family. Oh, I know. Like no cell phones. Okay. But imagine how wild it would have been to talk on the phone and get a proposal during this time. You know, just something totally wild, a newfangled invention. 
And that's just really fun to think about. Yeah. But it's probably the only time it's acceptable <laughs> to be proposed to you over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> when, it, when it's brand new. <laughs> if that was happening today, I feel like you just get the old hang up, <laughs> you know? No, but, like, yeah. Could you imagine if like great, great grandma yeah. told you like, oh, he proposed to me over the telephone. That would have been really cool back then. Yeah. So crazy. But yeah. Esther is so sweet. How she kind of covers up the embarrassment. She's like, well, no other girl in St. Louis got a long distance call to inquire about her health from a Yale man, no less. So she's, you know, she's a good sister. She's a good friend. Yeah, but this is a fun family and I can't wait to see what happens next with all of them. Oh yeah. So after dinner, Esther finally gets to meet John properly when he is a guest at the Smith's house party. Although her chances of romancing him don't go as planned when after all the guests are gone and he is helping her turn off the gas lamps throughout the house, he tells her she uses the same perfume as his grandmother and that she has a mighty strong grip for a girl. So this is already so cute. We get some amazing lines. Uh, A, I want to put this side note out there first. I feel like this movie would have had zero problem getting past the censors for the production code. I'm like sure they just read the premise and they're like, yeah, it's it's a go. It's good. <laughs> you sure you don't want to screen it? No, no, no. Yeah. You're, you're good. You just yeah. send it. <laughs> like so cute. The line, Rose, I've decided I'm going to let John Truett kiss me tonight. And how Rose is like, nice girls don't let men kiss them until after they're engaged. Oh, Rose. <laughs> I know. If only you saw what was happening a century later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this would have been really old fangled even hearing it in the 1940s too. So it would have been really cute being like, oh, stole a kiss from her. So really fun there. And uh, the whole party sequence. How about this scene? How fun. Esther is pulling every move in the book to use her feminine wiles to get this John Truett <laughs> to be interested in her. And uh, we get more musical moments uh, popping up. And while these maybe don't give us a ton of insight into them as characters, we do get to know their culture more. Right. And, uh, and again, it's natural because people brought their own instruments to play with, which is pretty fun. Uh, what did you think to the Skip to My Lou song? I thought Skip to My Lou was... Pretty decent, but honestly, I really, really enjoyed the under the bamboo tree with uh, 2D yes. and Esther kind of <laughs> the cakewalk. Yeah, the, exactly. And I, I think that that was a pretty accurate reflection of how sisters would kind of interact. Like, don't mess this up, uh, and, and just kind of how they were putting on a show. Like, if I was part of a family like that, where I guess show tunes and singing and dancing were part of our normal house parties, then it would pretty much go exactly like that. So I it oddly I mean, there's no TV. Right. You so had it, to have fun somehow. I, I was going to say, you would be so screwed if someone in your family didn't have a good singing voice, but they just <laughs> were kind of like, oh, Lester's on the piano again. Like, just imagine Judy Garland couldn't sing, but she's constantly right, like, singing. I'd, oh my gosh. I'd Rose? Oh, she's a question. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, you're on the drums, Rose. But, uh, but yeah, I thought that that was pretty cool. I, I really like the Under the Bamboo Tree song. Did you like the I Was Drunk Last Night, Dear Mother? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. For some reason, Tootie's going to really grow up with a bunch of problems. Troublemaker. Uh, yeah, <laughs> troublemaker potential alcoholic, maybe an arsonist, uh, killer. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and there were other really cute moments. Uh, like when John was all, I can't find my hat anywhere. Darn it. Pardon my expression. Like, Oh, 
language, John Truitt. <laughs> Darn it. It's just so wholesome. It hurts. Right? It was so wholesome. And another amazing move from Esther Deer, hiding the hat. Classic, classic. Make him stay a little bit longer past when everyone else left. And we're already getting a couple little hints here at how much this kid likes basketball. He does uh, drop a mention of the sport. <laughs> For some <laughs> so. reason, everything reminds him of some kind of practice. You know, if it's not basketball <laughs> practice, it's football practice. If it's not football practice, it's it's God knows what. Yeah, and we get the mood lighting. They're going around the house. I would actually love to see this happen. Like if I were a fly on the wall <laughs> in 1904, I would love to see how flirting occurred like oh, totally. over over a century ago because this is I'm, I'm imagining you know this is exactly how it would be right kind of like if it was like a documentary which i don't know maybe some parts are accurate some parts aren't but yeah just like the whole <laughs> can you help me turn off the gas lamps <laughs> 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 yeah no just so ridiculous and um using it yeah being afraid of mice but yeah what 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 do you think about all this it took such an effort. Uh, my favorite is the backfire with the perfume compliment. Yeah, like, oh, what are you wearing? And then he's like, that's exactly the perfume my grandmother uses. <laughs> like, oh, man. Yeah, I actually forgot about that line. And I was eating dinner while rewatching this. And I, I actually yelled, what? <laughs> like, brah, come on. You got to read the room a little bit. You're the only guy there. You're turning off the lights. She smells good. Don't mention your grandma. Just come on. Something tells me that this is John's first kind of dip into the waters of romance. Oh, you know what? I wouldn't be shocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially after saying that she has a mighty strong grip for a girl after shaking her hand goodnight. Yeah, John's um, pretty innocent. <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, I would say, I would say. But man, this goes into another nice little musical number where... Esther hopes to meet John again the following Friday on a trolley ride from the city to the construction site of the World's Fair. Esther is sad, though, when the trolley sets off without any sign of him, but cheers up when she sees him running to catch the trolley mid-journey. Okay. Okay, so the trolley song scene. One of the most famous movie scenes, definitely one of the most famous from this movie. Uh, the trolley song was a huge hit when this movie was released. Uh, so the trolley song was written by Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine. So they were really struggling to figure this song out with Freed, the producer. Just totally at a loss, not sure what to do. Martin and Blaine went to their local public library and researched the history of transportation in St. Louis, which is kind of an interesting, like, I love the dedication, like, snaps to you boys. I'm, I'm for it. Uh, and so... In either a book or a newspaper, it showed a picture of a turn-of-the-century trolley car with the caption, clang, 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 went the jolly little trolley, or it just said, clang, 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 went the trolley. Either way, thus, the opening lines of this song were born. Blaine and Martin were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song at the 1945 Academy Awards, uh, but they did lose to Swingin' on a Star from Going My Way. So, shoot. Uh, but this scene is particularly a prime example of an integrated musical in action. So, set the stage here. The trolley is making sounds with the bells, the dinging, the rhythm on the tracks. It gives a natural tune for them to start singing to. The trolley experience going to the fairgrounds is exciting, and it mirrors 
her excitement and her heart racing about John Truett, her crush. Uh, and again, this comes out a lot more natural than her just chilling on the sidewalk, singing about how nervous she feels about him. Like this, this has an experience coupled with a feeling that are related. So, I mean, also like, yeah, I, I, I totally can empathize with these feelings. I think a lot of us can relate to that moment when you're expecting to see your crush somewhere and you get excited. So it brings up a lot of joy for you as an audience, for sure. Relatable situation, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and look at the costume design choice in this scene. She is dressed in black, oddly enough, not wow. wearing a hat. And the other women on the trolley are wearing bright colors and big hats. Yet, in a way, this does make her stand out even more even though it's kind of more opposite. Yeah, I was going to say that that's actually the most sort of notable thing when you're watching this scene. How, I don't want to say plainly she's dressed, but compared to everyone else and how colorful everyone else is, it's like her costume and her her outfit isn't the thing that is showing her beauty. I think mm -hmm. it actually accentuates more of her other features. Exactly. When, you, when you're not focusing as much on what she is wearing, especially since you kind of saw all that before. Now that she's kind of in something a little bit more plain every day, it, it, yeah. it kind of brings a different feel. They didn't make her so cutesy or probably what she's used to being dressed like in her roles. They made her like a, a woman who has feelings of being in love. And I think, yeah, like you said, she just looked beautiful. So really mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. You can almost see sort of all the other women on the trolley as being kind of like her, her emotions, like how excited she is and sort of all the, the love, maybe if you want to call it that, that sure. she feels. And so it's kind of like she's dealing with all these emotions, dancing and singing around her, but she, she really just wants to see her mans, John Truett. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't, <laughs> who wouldn't want to see? Who yeah. wouldn't want to see John Truett? He's probably at basketball practice, you know, <laughs> running back from basketball practice. You know what? I'm going to say it now. This was the first red flag. The guy <laughs> doesn't have the best sense of timing. Yeah. And this yeah. is ding number one. Yeah, come on. Come on, come on, <laughs> Esther. You're better than this girl. But um, <laughs> yes, after the magical trolley ride, we get to my personal favorite <laughs> sort of segment of the movie, and that is Autumn. Autumn 1903. And on Halloween, Tootie and Agnes are costumed and ready to go out for the night. While Agnes and the other neighborhood children discuss who they will kill, which is sort of the 1903 version of just throwing flour at people. Um, like flour isn't like what you bake with. Not right, like, flour. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty things. Uh, Tootie, Tootie begs to be included but is ignored. Desperate to prove herself, she volunteers to go after the dreaded Mr. Brockoff. When she succeeds despite her fears, the others proclaim her to be the most terrible and let her toss furniture on the bonfire. Back home, Rose and Esther are talking when all of a sudden Tootie comes in crying, claiming that John Truett attacked her. Without bothering to investigate, Esther confronts John, physically attacking him and scolding him for being a bully. When Esther returns, Tootie and Agnes confess the truth. John was trying to protect them from the police after a dangerous prank went wrong. Upon learning the truth, Esther immediately dashes to John's house to apologize and they share their first kiss. This is a great scene. The Halloween scene, one of the most classic timeless Halloween scenes of all time. It is kicking it 
old school. Oh, we're dialing it back, folks. This is a Halloween that I wish that I could have experienced. <laughs> this is like pre-Halloween as we even know it today. Right. No trick-or-treating, just wild pranks, dressing up like crazy. Back when Ragamuffin Day was still in full, <laughs> full uh, swing. Right. You've got grandpa encouraging these shenanigans and making it all spooky for them. How special. Like I would definitely guess that there were some spirits rolling around the earth with me that night. That Halloween bonfire baby. So cool. And one of the most brilliant, beyond brilliant ways this sequence was filmed was that it was shot from low angles. So you as an audience member would experience this Halloween night through the eyes of a child. So when Tootie is uh, going to the Brockhoff house, the house, like you're looking up at it and it looks really big and scary. It just creates such an extremely special experience to replicate for your audience. And it, you know, it brings, it really brings you back. Mm -hmm. So, so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's the first thing that stands out to me. The second thing that stands out to me, I love the set design. I feel like the the Halloween decorations here are so mm-hmm. perfect between the vintage. Like, yeah, they're, they're, they're really vintage. It's, <laughs> it's such a vibe. I'm not going to lie. It is a complete vibe. Uh, I want my future home to be like this one during this Halloween. But yeah, I mean, I love the, uh, I guess the the hijinks of the neighborhood kids and how cool it was to just light a bonfire off in the middle of the road. Um, <laughs> I think that the Brockhoff family is actually very nice. I think that oh my like, gosh. Mr. Brockhoff was like, probably knew what was going on and he was cool with it. And the dog, yeah. little bulldog is so cute. He's got his little Cutest spiked little bulldog collar. Ever. <laughs> you know, he's probably dressed up for Halloween. He's like the OG uh, <laughs> kind of costume dog. Yeah. I mean, I just, I love sort of how, the the suspense and the buildup with like the strings and I mean everything changes mm-hmm. you know it's like the the instruments that are used are different and it just really really gives that eerie feeling I love how dark everything is and Tootie you know going up to the Brockhoff door is just so suspenseful because you don't know really what <laughs> Brockhoff's reaction is going to be but right you're getting it from the kids' perspective the whole time which is right. really fun yeah no I, I love I love 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 that scene and then yes of course we see sort of Tootie coming back I was gonna say it was a very uh, I guess similar to how if anyone else out there has seen the Sandlot which again baseball movie, childhood, one of my favorites, but how Squince Palmadoris ended up kissing Wendy Peppercorn and he became a legend that day. This is very uh, similar in a similar vein to how Tootie became a legend that day in the neighborhood. And I feel like (laughs) from that point on, her being the most horrible really just solidified everything in her mind about her self-identity. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. (laughs) I'm sure that was probably one of the crowning moments of her childhood. Just so wonderful. Uh, I mean, besides the kids perspective, there were other things that I love, like, oh man, I want to go on an all Hallows Eve stroll in the carriage with the Colonel. Oh yeah. Poor Rose. I feel like her love life is just floundering. She just wants to be loved. (laughs) It's it's dying as well as everything else outside. So it's like, Rose's love life is very, I mean, I guess everyone's life is very reminiscent to the the change of the season. So uh, yeah, I mean, you feel for Rose because she's just trying to get it in and it's just oh not gosh. happening from any, anybody, any suitor. So, uh, so yeah, but 
yeah, craziness happening with Tootie getting apparently attacked by John Truitt and then oh, you know, Esther going and punching away at John, John really not knowing anything. Holy smokes, Esther wails on him. Like, mm. oh, how do you like that mighty strong grip now, Johnny boy? Well, it's like, bam, bam. Little does she know, he actually kind of liked it because it reminded him of football practice, but it's better oh with gosh. a girl, apparently. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, what kind of, this man's flirting game really needs to improve. But Okay, I, I yeah. And then we learned the truth. John was the one that saved them. And I'm like, Rose, don't defend them. Like, don't, don't, don't be all, oh, she was a good sport about it. No, she wasn't. Um, props Esther to then apologize to John because yeah. he did not attack Tootie. And they have their first romantic kiss. Do you think this guy has any game at all whatsoever? You know, I really think that he's kind of just going with the flow and he cannot be in control of the flow. I feel like this is <laughs> this is Esther's world and John is just kind of living in it. And he's just the boy we, next door. We, we, yeah, he is just the boy next door. And kind of similar to a meme, which we have referenced, not on the show, but outside. Young Bill Hader. Mark <laughs> me down is scared and horny. You know, he doesn't know whether Esther is going to sock him in the face or... <laughs> get kissed. I don't even know what's going on in, in John Truitt's mind, but he's just here for it. And he is, you know, he's just happy to be part of it. I really don't even know how he pulled Esther because I feel like everyone is kind of <laughs> going after her, but I know maybe that's just it. He's just so inept that Esther's like, this is the one I want. The, I want, I want the clueless one right here. The one that forgets everything, but <laughs> oh um, yeah, he's just, he's kind of the epitome of the dumb jock. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so John Truett isn't like that much of a prize if you were a, a girl in 1903. Unless you're Esther. And <laughs> in that case, then he's, he's the ultimate. And so all this is happening. And then that same night, Mr. Smith comes home, Lonzo. <laughs> Lon. Lon, I guess. Lonzo Lon. Sr. comes home and announces that he is to be sent to New York City on business and they will all move as a family after Christmas. The family is devastated and upset at this news, especially Rose and Esther, whose romances, friendships, and educational plans are threatened. Esther is also aghast because they will miss the world's fair. Although Mrs. Smith is upset as well, she reconciles with her husband and they sing a tender duet as she plays piano. Oh, well. They worked their whole life to be seniors and now <laughs> the rug is being pulled up from underneath them and now they're going to be off to New York City. That would actually be really devastating. Like, oh no, yeah. the dad's getting a transfer. But I love how their first reaction is like, oh, we can live without you for a little while. Like, we'll be fine. Like, stay strong. We'll see you in a few months. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> he's like, no, we're all going. And this is just like, yikes, a whole yikes scene. Alonzo Smith finds a way to insult just about everyone in his family while trying to uproot and force them all to move. It's a disaster. It's impressive. It's actually Not impressive. Even grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> no one is safe. <laughs> um, Katie, even grandpa. Katie, the maid. Right. <laughs> yeah, not good. And and the world's fair is next year. And 
by golly, now they might not even get to see it. The whole world is going to see this thing. Uh, this would be really, really devastating. It really is. This actually, I remember watching this for the first time and I felt like my heart was ripped out. I could just definitely put myself in that situation. You know, Esther just kissed John Truitt. <laughs> now yeah. it's like, never see him again. <laughs> exactly. And then we get the song, You and I. Again, the family piano uh, makes the music number come in smoother. Arthur Freed, the producer of this movie, of the Freed unit, uh, wrote this song. And I believe Freed actually dubbed his vocals in for Alonzo. So crazy impressive. That's nuts. I will say, though, to caveat all this or to play devil's (laughs) advocate, that this is probably the most forgettable song of the movie for me. I'm not personally a fan, but I do kind of like the setup for it. I do like how smooth the transition was of Mrs. Anna Smith going to the piano and then Lonzo being like, oh, it's so nice to see you sing again. You know, it did feel very (laughs) natural, but the song I wasn't a huge fan of. I feel like it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. This scene wouldn't have inspired you to come downstairs and have your cake with your family. I don't think there's anything that could have inspired me to come down and <laughs> eat that cake, even though it did look really, really good. I, I was, I was pretty hungry for dinner or for dessert after uh, watching this scene yesterday. And my God, that that light, airy cake looks so good. I really wanted that. What was it? The candy rose or candy flower, or candy whatever. Flower. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, could not convince me to come downstairs if I was just told that I had to uproot my entire life to move to the East Coast. Ooh, I'm shivering right now thinking about it. But, <laughs> but yes. So after all this, we are then thrust into winter 1903, where an elegant ball takes place on Christmas Eve. John cannot take Esther as his date because he forgot to pick up his tuxedo at the tailor's. Briefly disappointed, she is soon relieved when her grandfather offers to take her to the ball instead. At the ball, Esther and Rose plot to ruin the evening of Warren's date and Rose's rival, Lucille Ballard, an Eastern girl, by filling (laughs) up her dance card with losers. (laughs) (laughs) What is this? But when Lucille turns out to be interested in Lon, Lon Jr., that is, leaving Rose and Warren together, Esther switches her dance card with Lucille's and instead dances in Lucille's place with the clumsy and awkward partners. After being rescued by Grandpa, Esther is overjoyed when John inexplicably turns up in a tuxedo, and the pair dance together for the rest of the evening. Later on, John proposes to Esther, and she accepts, but their future is uncertain because she must still move to New York. Wow. Wow. What a scene. Lots to break down here. Uh, to begin with, look at this beautiful winterness. It does bring me back to my memories living in St. Louis when the first snowfall would happen. Ugh, so special. And it really gets you in the mood for the holiday season, Christmas if you're celebrating it. And how troublesome. The guy that Rose likes is apparently into the girl that her brother likes. So both siblings were rejected for people that like technically like each other, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little confusing, but it makes sense. They had to switch, essentially. I died at the line of, has it ever occurred to you to take your sister to the dance? I'd be like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Emma, that's not happening. (laughs) I feel like I wouldn't want to go, like we're a brother and sister. I can say, like, I don't know if I'd want to be, like, your date. I would go no. with you. Like, I right. would 
go accompany me with you, you accompany, accompany you me. like i would right. we would go together as brother and sister i'm not gonna say uh, <laughs> oh there's my date filling up by the punch you know right. punch bowl like oh there exactly. she is over there oh what's her name emma <laughs> i'm not i'm not dropping last names though <laughs> oh my gosh so i these these poor two poor lawn jr and rose have to go to it, it kills me when when esther is like if i didn't have a date which i have <laughs> i'd love to go with lawn and uh, i will say i will say katie does have a point that uh Lon and Rose don't have to be nice to each other. They can just like have a jolly good time and play the rounds because they're both single. <laughs> so yeah. that's fun. And it just, it's so fun when Rose and Esther are getting ready in their corsets uh, and how they need every ounce of alert to tackle those 20 men because uh, they've got to screw over Lucille Ballard. <laughs> yeah. How are they going to take on that Eastern girl they're competing with? And uh, I An mean, Eastern girl. Yeah. But oh my gosh, we're forgetting one of the best, most iconic lines of the entire movie. When I hope it's a hunting knife. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> When Ag when Agnes asks Rose what she gets her for Christmas, she's like, "I hope it's a hunting knife." Like, well, I guess oh that God. one. I, I guess that one as well. But I'm thinking that about when <laughs> Esther and John Truitt are discussing uh, how John oh, forgot God. his suit, and it was because of basketball practice. And my God, Esther doesn't hate him, but she hates basketball. That is <laughs> one of the best lines of all time oh my gosh so it's just funny to hear judy garland deliver that it's perfect it's perfect but i've never seen a line that has aged so well in my life it really <laughs> like has for, for a movie that came out in 1944 and was supposed to take place in 1903 brilliant yeah. also red flags esther red flags they're popping up again <laughs> this guy i don't know where his priorities lie but i don't know if they're with you i thought for a second that grandpa was going to give his suit to john that's what I thought when he was discussing how he had his suit. You know what? Like, oh, that would so make cute. sense. I was like, this is so cute. He's going to just, <laughs> no, I'm going to go to the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like what, what are you doing, grandpa? That may have crossed my mind as well. Like, why didn't he just give it to John? But you know what? It's probably a delicate suit and maybe <laughs> he doesn't want to, I don't know. I don't know. But grandpa, what a gent. Tuxedo <laughs> wants to take a step out. It's just so sweet. That suit has probably seen, uh, the Civil War or two, you know? Like, <laughs> oh, you know what? Maybe. That, that thing is so vintage. But yeah, this is also Susanna Stone's favorite scene. Yes, uh, From absolutely. the family stone. So I feel like that's also worth mentioning. The Christmas ball. What a magical scene. I love the red and green dresses that the sisters are sporting. Warren Sheffield, what a stud. He shows up with uh, Lucille Ballard, quite the refined lady. And he cleans up quite nicely. I would say that Warren actually is a little bit more impressive than John Truett. I I, I think Warren Sheffield is quite a catch. Not going to lie. R Rose is the big winner <laughs> of this entire movie. <laughs> which, oh my God, if you, told, if you could have seen that coming. No, who, who would have thought? Not not me. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And Lucille Ballard, she turns out to be not an evil Eastern snob. She turns out to be an actual angel. What a class act, uh, calling yeah. out all this sneaky nonsense, making everyone happy, offering to throw the girls their first party as debutantes in New York. My gosh, I want to be friends yeah. with Lucille Ballard. That's going to be quite the story for the bachelorette party when uh, <laughs> and Lucille are getting married with these potential in-laws but uh right this is quite the scene 
Esther then has to sacrifice her good night yet again for other people to be happy. And oh my gosh, Judy Garland is darling in this scene, how she kind of gets all bashful when grandpa calls her out on her good deed and stuff. And I love how grandpa's impressed and he takes her for a jolly old spin around the Christmas tree, her last dance in St. Louis. And oh, I get so emotional at this part. And on the other side, out comes Esther and John twirling around the Christmas tree. It's John. It's like a romantic Christmas miracle. It's so special. It just, it really brings that Christmas holiday magic to the forefront. And it's just so sweet. So I just love it. It's, it's beautiful. And then we get kind of a shocker. John, uh, after the dance, John proposes. My jaw is dropping. Now, let me get, let me get a gauge on your opinion for this. Do you think he's doing this because he wants to marry her? Or does he just want her to stay in St. Louis? I'm, I'm sure there's maybe a little bit of both. But my initial, I guess, thought was just like, yeah, I want to keep her in St. Louis. So I'm just going to marry her. And then, I don't know, maybe move into her house. I don't know what their plan was, <laughs> if they were going to sell it or not. But, oh, I see. Uh, John was John was sneaking to be just the boy, not the boy next door. Yeah, <laughs> he's just, just the boy. He's position. just looking to be the boy. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess that was where I initially thought like, yeah, you know, the rest of the family can move to New York. But if we get married... You're just staying in St. Louis. Mm. Uh, so I kind of saw that and I didn't actually understand sort of the predicament that they were in with her being uncertain about the move to New York. Like, yeah, maybe she would still move with her family, but if they were getting married, then wouldn't she just live in St. Louis with John? I, at that part, I was like, what? But you know, I think that's really at the heart of this movie. I mean, she learned that her home is where her family is, although she would like that home to be in St. Louis. And, and, you know, keep in mind, I mean, she's a senior and going to be a senior in high school. She's a kid still, and she's going to be separated from her family. And she realizes that, you know, that's her home. Her family's her home. So it's really, it's starting to evolve for her. Also, a little fun fact for you. Uh, if you are a diehard Meet Me in St. Louis fan, on Christmas Eve, if you start this film, Precisely at 10.22 with 30 seconds p.m., the church bells that toll at midnight during the proposal to Esther coincide perfectly with real-time midnight for Christmas Day. Uh, So if you want to bring in Christmas morning with John and Esther, uh, that is an option for you if you so choose. (laughs) I feel like I might just do do that this This year because this is going to be such a weird... This is going to be such a weird Christmas. (laughs) I feel like we're all going to be ringing it in alone. Exactly. I might as well bring it in with John and Esther. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so I feel like that's going to be probably what I do. (laughs) Sad as that sounds. (laughs) As sad as that sounds, everyone. But, you know, do it it with us. Also, fam, you're never alone. We're all together. That's what this is about. This is the holiday season. Christmas is next week. So, oh my God, why not? Let's just send it. Let's just send it as a fam. But, uh... All right. So after all this, Esther returns home to an upset Tootie contemplating a move to New York she doesn't want. Although her mood is temporarily soothed by Esther's poignant rendition of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas and Oh, What a Rendition That Is, Tootie remains inconsolable and runs out into the cold to destroy the snowmen they have constructed. Emma, this deserves its own little segment. Oh, man. I mean... 
this such a sweet moment between Esther and Tootie as Tootie is waiting for Santa, yet at the same time sad about moving from St. Louis. Q, have yourself a Merry Christmas. Again, this song was a huge hit. It remains many people's favorite Christmas song of all time. The most famous fact associated with this song is that the original lyrics were a little different. Uh, Judy Garland refused to sing the original grim lyric of have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last to a little Margaret O'Brien. She thought that that was quite disturbing. So because of her opposition to this, the songwriters rewrote that line to let your heart be light, which I think makes a lot more sense. Thank you, Judy Garland. I appreciate you using your voice. Yeah. Uh, yes. I think, didn't she also, Judy Garland, sing that? I don't know if she's sang the revised version to a group of soldiers or if it was that original kind of depressing version, but oh my God, could you imagine singing that first uh, version to a bunch of soldiers? Like, no. I would actually, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be able to go on after that. I just, yeah, this is why teamwork makes the dream work, everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> listen to other people's opinions and feedback. Yes. So again, this song, again, another brilliant integrated musical moment. Esther uses Tootie's music monkey toy to create a tune for the song that she then sings to her sister in order to soothe her. So that's just it. It's the purpose for comforting someone. It's singing about the experiences they're having and their emotions. From a story standpoint, you can see her trying to calm Tootie down about moving. And at the same time, you can see her heartbreaking because in her head, you see in that moment, she's made the decision to go to New York with her family and leave John. So it's very emotional. And it's all at this pinnacle holiday of being with the people you loved and right. celebrating togetherness. And I have to say, this song hits different, as the kids say, uh, for the year 2020. I feel like we're all trying to have a Merry Little Christmas or what your holiday choice this year. I feel like we're all trying to have a Merry Little Christmas this year. And we're all trying to muddle through until we can be together again if the fates allow, um, yeah. you know, we're, we're all trying to get through this tough time so that we can have our holidays together next year. So very emotional because this movie and this song is all about loving your family and sticking together. And we just have to do that in ways unlike normal this year. So yeah, it definitely makes me emotional when I watched it. Yeah, this was definitely the scene that kind of broke me when I, when I was watching it just because you see, I mean, it's the pinnacle of Judy Garland's Margaret yeah. O'Brien sort of, it's the culmination of their relationship. You know, the dream team. Yeah, of the dream team. But also just Judy Garland saying like, it doesn't matter where we are, it's like, as long as we're together. Right. And putting that within the context, I think of 2020 when so many people won't be together. Right. I feel like that is really what just, it wrecks you on the inside. And it wrecked me when I was watching it. Because like, you see Tootie, and I think sometimes we forget, like, I mean, this is kind of meta, but <laughs> we're around people so much in normal times that we kind of forget that they have all these feelings of their own. And I think that this is really Margaret O'Brien's best moment where her tears just like, they, they hit you in a, such a deep place where it's so hard not to feel like just 
how deep her sadness is. And totally. so I, I think, yeah, that's where you, you just sympathize so much with her as a character. And that's where like, if it didn't hit you earlier, cause it's such a wholesome, like happy enough, li- uplifting story. <laughs> like this is the moment where it kind of, the fantasy starts to become a reality, I would say. And everyone's kind of trying to come to terms with that. And so that's what I feel like makes this song so powerful, so sad, so uh, so iconic in just this scene. And yeah, it's it's just a it's a great moment. And then to to see like how emotional Tootie gets uh, after, and then how she goes on a little rampage of <laughs> destroying all of her snowmen. Like it's just so it's so emotional and sad. Right. Like you said, I mean, ultimately, this song is all about hope. It's really about hope that things will get better. So that's what really struck me. And like you said, Tootie's yeah, destruction of the snowman family. This is kind of wild because this is another stage, famous stage mom moment here. I have heard different variations of the story. I have heard that the mother of Margaret O'Brien told Vincent Minnelli to tell Margaret that someone was going to kill her dog or something like that to get her to cry. Uh, Margaret O'Brien has denied this. She's like, my mom would never do that. But I've also heard that Margaret O'Brien's mom, so there was actually like a rivalry between her and another child star, June Allison. And there was a rivalry who was the better crier, like who could cry better on command. And I I heard that uh, she was like, well, you know, I heard that someone was like, well, June's a better crier. And that would make her like start crying and <laughs> like go for the scene. Yeah. So just interesting little child acting there. I'm sh- quite the, quite the world that is. Yeah. But uh, just what a, what a great scene. Honestly, watch it for, for that one. Uh, it's just, it's so beautiful. Judy Garland at her best, but watching all this is Alonzo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Alonzo in the window, kind of like a weird 1904 Gatsby. Uh, He's watching his (laughs) youngest daughter's tantrum from upstairs, and then he changes his mind. The family will not leave St. Louis. After all, he announces, Warren is then free to declare his love for Rose. They will marry at the first possible opportunity. Yeah, what joyous news. Uh, like this is such a beautiful scene because Alonzo has grown as a person. And instead of focusing on only what he wants and making this big ask of his family, he's putting their wants first. It's amazing character growth from the man that we met who was, I'm going to take my bath and then we're going to eat. It's really special to see that dynamic change. And I just love the light bulb moment when he makes this decision. Like what a great Christmas gift he gave to his family. I love how he frames it too. If we're going to stay right here in St. Louis, like it's a threat. Yeah. Like it's a bad thing to them. And oh, this movie, it just makes me miss St. Louis. When he talks about how, you know, New York isn't the only place with a copyright on opportunity. You can you can find opportunity in St. Louis. Like that really was so special to me because I feel like I did grow a lot in St. Louis. And I feel like whatever your 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 version of St. Louis is, whatever your home is or wherever you grew up, I, I feel like that's a sentiment we can all agree with, that you can be your best self wherever you, whatever city you love. Yeah. And I love Warren Sheffield coming in at the 1 a.m., 2 a.m., I don't even know, proposal. I would Rose. love to know what was going on in Warren's head before all this, you know? Right? Like, I would love to see where he was at. What's his plan to just intrude on this sleeping family and like 
like you know Krampus. What, you know, you know what Warren Sheffield was doing. Warren was at midnight mass, like a good Catholic Midwestern man. And then he came into the Smith household, and he knew right after that silent night, one a.m. call, he knew that he was going to marry Rose Smith. That's exactly what happened. I love, I love that journey for him. I love that backstory. And I love Lon's reaction. Anna, who is that boy? <laughs> it's just, it's so sweet. Hopefully I'll get to meet him one day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really beautiful Christmas moment. It's one of my favorite Christmas scenes. So gorgeous. And yeah, and then uh, like real life, we can't live in Christmas forever and things start to change again. Yep. Winter turns to spring. And then on or after April 30th, 1904, the family takes two horse-drawn buggies to the World's Fair. And then the film ends that night with the entire family, including Esther, John, Lucille, and Warren, gathered on a precipice overlooking the fair's Grand Lagoon, just as thousands of lights illuminate the Grand Pavilion and are switched on. It's spring. And I should have mentioned this way earlier, but I hope you noticed the title cards that show the transitions between seasons. Uh, If we didn't mention it last week, the family stone definitely got a lot of inspiration for their intro from this change of scenes and seasons. Uh, And I, I love, look how dressed up everyone is for the World's Fair. Such beautiful costumes. Some of the most beautiful I've ever seen. It makes me want to cry. It's just absolutely stunning. And I just have like a little backstory, like little history note on uh, the World's Fair, in case you're interested. The Louisiana Purchase Exposition, aka the St. Louis World's Fair, took place in St. Louis, Missouri from April 30th, 1904 to December 1st, 1904. More than 60 countries and then 43 of the then 45 American states had exposition spaces at the fair or booths. And it was attended by nearly 19.7 million people. That's a, a big number in 1904. It had a huge impact of sharing knowledge on history, art, anthropology, and architecture. Uh, For example, inventions and scientific discoveries like the wireless telephone, what? The x-ray machine, uh, infant incubators, cars, airplanes, they were all shared there. It also displayed new inventions and consumer goods for the first time. New foods like waffle, ice cream cones, cotton candy, Dr. Pepper. Those were all introduced to the world at this World's Fair for the first time ever. And I believe there was also a whale skeleton. So that would have been pretty cool. The, the attendees at this fair are insane. Among the attendees of the fair, including this massive whale skeleton, apparently, <laughs> were Theodore Roosevelt, Thomas Edison, Helen Keller, Geronimo, and Jack Daniel from Jack Daniel's whiskey. And not only that, but this was where he first entered his whiskey into a whiskey competition. And that's where he won his first gold medal for the finest whiskey in the world. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Crazy stuff happening at this fair. Yeah. One of the most famous ever. It's so amazing. This World's Fair was really a world-changing event. It was It was really everything that they amped it up to be. Like, like these girls weren't just like, I want to go to the fair. Like, yeah, this really yeah. was the center of yeah, culture and yeah. knowledge. This isn't the county fair. This is the World's <laughs> Fair. Back when a World's Fair was a World's Fair, when it meant exactly. something. But, uh, oh my goodness, what else, Emma, was going on? <laughs> One of the craziest facts about the 1904 World's Fair is that it almost derailed the Olympic Games forever. Now, this 
was not the first World's Fair. In 1900, Paris held the previous World's Fair, and they held the Olympic Games at the same time. Now, keep in mind, the first modern Olympic Games took place in 1896, and then Paris held the second Olympic Games. So they were trying to revamp the Olympic Games, and they thought, what a perfect opportunity. Let's have it at the same time as the World's Fair. Disaster. The Olympics ended up being a sideshow, and they went terrible. It went really bad. Now, America didn't learn anything from this. They were originally slated to have the World's Fair in St. Louis and slated to have the Olympics in Chicago. Now, the St. Louis Fair organizers were worried that people would go to the Olympics instead of the fair in St. Louis. So they threatened to hold a national track and field championship in St. Louis, which would take away Olympic competitors because the Olympics were still in the process of rebranding and becoming a thing. Now, this is kind of weirdly counterintuitive then because if you're pulling athletes to a random track competition because the Olympics aren't that special, why would you think the Olympics would take that many people away from your fair. If anything, you go to St. Louis to the fair and then you take a train ride up to Chicago or vice versa, (laughs) whatever. Um, Anyway, so just like Paris, it went terrible. And the Olympics became just a side attraction next to the World's Fair. It was most known for a disastrous race where this race course wasn't marked off. So they were just running amongst people and cars. One of the racers was chased by a dog. And one of the racers even got in a car mid-race and had it drive him to the finish line to beat everyone else. He was disqualified. But that's the kind of disaster this was. Wild. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. So this fair almost ended the Olympics, but the Olympics did recover. And obviously, they're huge. We have them today, and we no longer have World's Fairs. So, womp. I say bring back World Fairs. I would love that. I would too. I would too. And <laughs> I really hope all the Smiths had fun at that World Fair. Hope they no. were able to meet a few people, see the whale, and uh, <laughs> yeah, just bask in the glory of St. Louis. I mean, how magical. This scene brings back memories that I never even made. And it's just so <laughs> sweet. And when the lights all light up at the World's Fair Pavilion, how beautiful, how magical. And it's all right where they live. They're in St. Louis. I just couldn't think of a more beautiful ending to this movie. This along with It's a Wonderful Life. I love Christmas movies that make me excited for the year to come. I love movies in general, but especially holiday movies that make you excited for, you know, regrowth and rebirth for the next year and to make more memories. Uh, I think that's always really special. And this movie definitely inspires me and makes me look forward to what's to come. And I can't stress that enough for next year. I think that things will definitely be a lot better next year. And I really hope that everyone's able to, yeah, watch, watch this movie, watch It's a Wonderful Life, of course, and listen to our old episode of that because it's great. But uh But yeah, what a wonderful, wonderful movie. And wow, I just, I hope that everyone has a very fun, safe, happy Christmas or whatever holiday you're celebrating and just enjoy, enjoy the season, everyone. Emma, what do you have before we sign off? Oh man, I, you know, thank you all so much for writing this journey with us. It's been a fun holiday season. Yeah, I'm just 
excited to keep watching some holiday movies and celebrate. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you again, old soul fam. We want to, again, wish you a very merry, happy Christmas, happy holidays to everyone. And be sure to check us out on social media if you want to hit us up. We know that this has been a very, very long episode. So we thank you for sticking with us all the way to the end. Uh, Old Soul Movie Podcast on Instagram. Be sure to tell us what your favorite scene was, what your favorite song was, maybe what your favorite season is of, uh, you know, (laughs) this great movie, Meet Me in St. Louis. But until next time, everyone, Emma. Happy holidays. Ho, ho, ho. Take care.